Good morning. Welcome to those who are joining us online and in the fellowship hall this morning. Today we are diving into chapter 8 of the book of Hebrews and we're leaning back into our recurring connecting the dots of faith question, how do you see God and how does God see you? And the lens that we're using today is that of the old covenant and the new covenant promises between God and the people. But before we can really understand why this new covenant matters so much, we first have to understand the importance of a promise in the context of a relationship. Covenants are a kind of contractual agreement of relationship between two people or two groups. They're kind of like a solemn promise that becomes the foundation of your relationship with each other. So at their core, covenants are relational. They're personal because promises are personal. So to get us all in the right mindset, I want to start by asking you, have you ever made a promise to someone? Why? Have you ever broken a promise that you made to someone? Why did you end up breaking it? Has anyone ever broken a promise that they made to you? When that promise was broken, how did you feel about the relationship you had with that person? And how did it feel when it was you who ended up breaking your promise to someone? A promise, when kept, builds trust. It strengthens a relationship. And a promise, when broken, no matter what side of the breaking of the promise you're on, it hurts. And I have to say, when promises are broken, it's usually not because a person willfully decided to break their promise, <laughs> although that can certainly happen. But most of the time when promises are broken, it's because we promise something that's beyond our ability to deliver. For example, we'll go to Disney next year, I promise, and then enter the pandemic. I'll be back in an hour, I promise, and then you hit traffic. I'm sorry I missed your once-in-a-lifetime event. I'll make it up to you, I promise. But how does one make up for something like that? Most often when we promise something, what we're actually doing is emphatically stating our sincere intention. This is what I really hope to do. But the truth is, as human beings, our promises become opportunities for apologies about as often as they are relationship strengtheners. Which is why in scripture, in James 4, James encourages us, rather than making a promise, to instead say, if it be the Lord's will, I'll do this or that. Because truthfully, we're not in control of much. So we state our intention with realistic humility and humanity. And we learn to be careful that things we do promise actually are within our capacity to give. And I think this becomes clear to us the more we see how life thwarts all our best laid plans. The longer we live, I think, the easier it is for us to see how much we all need God's grace to carry us through the many, many situations where our best intentions fall apart. We need someone who offers better promises than we can to be the foundation of our hopes. And that's what the new covenant in Hebrews 8 is all about. But before we can get into the new covenant, we have to start with the old one, which serves the purpose of showing us just why we need the new. 
Throughout the Old Testament, God instigates the old covenant of relationship between the people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and himself, which is basically an if-then kind of contract, saying, if you will be my people, then I will be your God. Exodus 19, 5 through 6 says, now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession." Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. This is a promise of a relationship that's unique and special. And God's covenant relationship with this people started with one ancestor, Abraham, in Genesis 12. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. And this covenant is an if-then. If you will trust me enough to go where I send you, then I will bless you. Take a step of faith, Abram. See what I will do. You see, God's plan to bless the world was to start with the people who knew him and trusted him, to show the world what it looks like to live in relationship with him. So he started the story of his covenant love, which is intended for all, with a relational promise that was made to one. And trusting, Abraham went. And Genesis 15 tells us in verse 6, Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. Now remember that verse because it's going to come back in Hebrews again in a few chapters teaching us about the central role of faith in God's definition of righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? This is so human, isn't it? We just heard about Abram's faith, and this next line is all about his doubt. (laughs) So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. Now, what is happening here? God gives Abraham a promise, and Abram, I think pretty boldly, confesses he's going to need some help believing it. Because if he's hearing this wrong, it could go very, very badly. So Abraham dares to ask, how do I know that you'll do this? And by this point, Abraham has already shown his trust in God by the fact that he had blindly moved away from everything he knew and moved into this new country. So in the spirit of covenant relationship, since Abram had moved toward him, God moves toward Abram, giving him assurances in a way that Abram can understand using the symbolic language of his desert culture. Because in Abram's day, when two groups were making a covenant with each other, they would sacrifice an animal, cut it in half, and both parties would walk through the bloody space between the halves, making their vow, effectively saying, if I don't fulfill my promise to you, may my blood also be spilled. May I be ripped in two like this sacrifice. Pretty gross. (laughs) But also pretty effective in getting the seriousness of this vow across. So when Abram asks, how will I know you'll do this, God? God has Abram prepare this scene. And then in verse 17, 
When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land from the wadi of Egypt to the great river the Euphrates. Now, did you notice who goes through this grisly passage of blood? Only God. Abram is not asked to walk through it. Only the Lord offers to lay down the collateral price for this covenant. Abram is only asked to trust that God will be faithful. This is how this relationship begins. And generation after generation, God presents this covenant of relationship. And because relationship requires the investment of both sides, he says, if you will be my people, I will be your God. To Isaac, to Jacob, to Moses, to his wandering people in the desert, be faithful to me and you will find me faithful. And yet, even after he proves faithful, generation after generation, they are not In the desert, they end up worshiping a golden calf. They refuse to believe God would bring them into the land. They declare they'd rather die in the wilderness. So God says, fine, next generation, you're up. And when that new generation settles in the land, they too prove to be unfaithful over and over again. But as often as they repent and cry out to God, whenever they return to him, they find he is faithful to return to them. In the time of King Solomon, they established the temple and the practice of sacrifice to help them in paying attention, honoring, and maintaining their side of this covenant relationship with God. And here, Hebrews wades into the role of earthly priests and the old covenant relationship between God and people, facilitating the sacrifices of the people to God. And offering a sacrifice was basically a step of confession, offering something that costs us something as an acknowledgement that we know we've missed the mark in this relationship. It's basically a, let me make it up to you. And mediating that was the job of the priests. But even though it helped people take their relationship with the holy God seriously, This system proved woefully ineffective at actually bringing into reality the kind of relationship God actually desired. Because this practice eventually led to the impression that if one could just keep up their tab on the sorry tax, that payment was the kind of relationship God wanted. And what kind of relationship picture does this paint? One that's transactional, demanding, cold, and calculating, rather than loving, relational, familial, personal. The covenant relationship God wanted with people, you will be my people, I will be your God, somehow became instead, keep up with paying what you owe me, because if you get behind, you're in for it. More like a mob boss sending enforcers on a debt you know you'll never be free of and never pay off. That kind of picture doesn't lead to love, but fear, even resentment. Now, I realize that's a pretty severe analogy, but although the heart of the Old Testament covenant was beautiful, relational, hopeful, I am yours, you are mine, no covenant that requires enough of our right action will ever truly lead to a relationship of love with the Holy God. Because the truth is, we all know deep down, we can't deliver No matter what we intend, at some point we all know we will end up breaking our promises to the one who is always faithful 
to us. We are the weak link in this relationship. And in the true spirit of a covenant, we want to be able to meet him halfway. And our human pride actually leads us to want to claim that we actually do do this for the sake of our own bragging rights. But the truth is, if we have any hope of standing at all, we're going to need better promises than ours to stand on. So having set the stage to show us what kind of relationship we actually need with him, whether we want to admit it or not, God then proceeds to provide it for us by sending his son Jesus to mediate a whole new kind of covenant relationship with us. So having heard that background, now hear these verses from Hebrews 8 again. If he were on earth, he, Jesus, would not be a priest, for there are already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. But in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises. For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, quoting Jeremiah 31, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete, and what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. Now, did you notice that the relational purpose of this new covenant is exactly the same as the old one? I will be your God, you will be my people. But this covenant presents a radically different means of achieving that. This covenant is established on better promises. Not yours, not mine, but his. The old covenant was an if-then. If you will, then I will. Now God is saying, scratch that because obviously you won't. <laughs> so, <laughs> if I want you, and I do, it will have to be because of what I do. Did you hear all the eyes in that prophesied new covenant? I will establish, I will write, I will be, I will forgive, I will remember their sins no more. He will. And when is this new covenant revealed to us? On the night in which Jesus is betrayed by a friend who had once loyally promised to follow him. When Jesus gathers with the most loyal, most passionate of those who claim to love and follow him to celebrate a meal that's all about God's faithfulness to the people of Israel in the old covenant. And that night, all of the followers in that room, including the betrayer, lived under the promises of that old covenant. If you will, then I will. And that night, all of them, when Jesus was handed over to death, would abandon him proving themselves to be utterly faithless 
before the faithful one. Was there ever a more poignant moment where we see why we need a covenant on better promises than ours? And so Jesus, by his words and actions, declares that now is the time for the new covenant to begin. In 1 Corinthians 11, it says, The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Jesus' words and action reveals the foundation of the new covenant. In this covenant, I will do the work. It's my body, my blood given for you. I will not ask you to meet me halfway. I come all the way to you, into your very life, into your body, into your soul, into your sin, even into your death. So even there, I can present you with the free gift of a life, my resurrection life, purchased for you by my life laid down for you and placed in you. This covenant is no longer an if-then. Now it's because I, you are. And as you take, as you receive his promise for you into your being, Jesus says, do this remembering me. Now what relational picture does this covenant create? What does it say to you about how God sees you? Do you remember how in making his covenant promise to Abraham, God alone offered to bear the weight of the price of this covenant relationship, the penalty of blood of being rendered in two should this not be accomplished? Although it wasn't God, but the people of Abram who were unfaithful to that covenant, God was not willing to let human faithlessness be the final word in his relationship with us, so he fulfilled our part of the old covenant. He became the stand-in in our place. And it became Jesus who walked the bloody road of suffering for us. And on the cross, when Jesus took on himself the sins of the world, for the only time in all eternity, the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit was ripped apart as Jesus died with the penalty of our sin, crying out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God himself allowed his very being to be rended in two to pay the price for us to make room for us. And when three days later Jesus was raised victorious over death, he opened the way for us to be welcomed into his resurrection life by a new covenant relationship of his grace that depends not on our work or our promises, but his alone for our sake. The foundation of our relationship covenant with God is no longer if then, it is now because I, you are. And yet, every relationship still has two parts. So if you want this covenant relationship, here is your part. Receive it. Because he is Savior, you are the one he has saved. Because I have loved you, you are loved. 
Because I have forgiven you, you are forgiven. And the because I, you are covenant of relationship, the action required of us is not for us somehow to be enough. It's simply to trust that he is enough for you. Because he is, you are. When you look to Jesus, is that the picture of God you see? Do you know, beloved, that in Jesus Christ there are better promises to hold you than any you could offer? Do you understand just what that means about how much God loves you and wants to be in relationship with you? By his Holy Spirit, he wants to write his word on your heart to be your God as you are his child. The Holy Spirit's work is to remind us, to teach us all the things Jesus taught in word and action about who God actually is and because of his grace, who we are and will be for all eternity. His desire is that you will know him as he knows you. And all who trust in Christ are forgiven by his blood and he will remember our sins no more. Now this is so foreign to what we're used to in the world. We live in a if-you-will-then-I-will world. But scripture and history and frankly every attempt at religion worldwide has shown us all our attempts to achieve godly perfection never results in righteousness. Right relationship with God can only come through his gift to us and our willingness to receive it and humble recognition that we need what he promises. And that he means for us to enter into that promise with joy. Because that's the only way this actually works. And this is where our true peace is found. Living in an if-then world creates a lot of anxiety and fear for us because it puts the center of our hopes on what we can produce. So when the fears and anxieties of life start to take over, that's a good time to look into your own heart and to ask yourself, Whose promises are you depending on? And receiving the new covenant promises, Jesus specifically tells us to receive while remembering him. Not remembering us, our actions, our worthiness, our level of deserving. Because what divines our worth, our security, our acceptance isn't what we've done or failed to do. It all rests on what Jesus does for us and why. So take this promise, Jesus says, and remember me. Because when you do, what does that do to your life, beloved? When you know that you're being held by the new covenant of Jesus' work for you and the love of a God who comes to you to meet you right where you are, who chooses to become himself the sacrifice for you, how does that change how you feel about your relationship with him? When you know the promises that bring your salvation are his to you, not yours to him, what does that do to your life? A covenant relationship takes two, but in this covenant, your work is to receive this gift and trust because he is, you are. And that joy opens up a world of possibilities for what his grace can do to bless the world through you. Because how we react to a broken world when we know that we are held by grace is different than how we react when we are wrapped up in thinking our future depends on us getting it all right. 
When we trust God for our future, it's so much easier to walk with peace through the messes we find ourselves in today with the gifts of the Spirit of God, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control for others. So if this week you find yourself without grace for others around you, stop and take a moment to spiritually diagnose your heart. Surrender your if-then relationship for the because-he-you-are relationship. Let the Holy Spirit show you who in Christ's grace you are and lean into the covenant that holds you so that you might be a community of his grace for a world that dearly needs to know his love. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would help us find our hope and our help and our comfort on the better promises of your grace, of your redeeming love, your forgiveness. Remind us of your love that will not let us go and teach us by your Holy Spirit to constantly remember you. Write your word on our hearts so that what overflows from us may be of you. Thank you, Lord, that you are our salvation, not us. And help us to lean into your grace and walk in the joy of being held in your covenant love as we seek to let our lives speak your blessing through our lives to the world. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.